0: What I want to do this evening is <clears throat> already said, we're going to look at this last little bit, these last four verses uh, of the book of Obadiah. I'm just going to read the passage. We're going to fire straight into our three points. We're going to be succinct and I'm going to be to the point. Let's read from verse 17. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance, it will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble. And they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau. And people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who were in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Zephyrat will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kings will and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Thank you for that light. It's wonderful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, would you open our hearts? Would you still our hearts? And would you speak? to each one of us tonight. Would you show us something of your goodness, your character, and your care for your people? I loved opening these verses this week. Amen. Sorry, did I forget to say amen again? I've done that a couple of times, my bad. Um, sorry, forgive me. Um, yeah. I can't remember what I was going to say. I lost my thought. Let's go for it. Um, I, I love opening this this week and in, in just seeing Jesus on the pages of what was written In front of me and I just want to look at three things that are pulled right out of these verses I read here from the NIV translation I will be going into the ESV later eh, as we go into Matthew 27 because I think the language is helpful so it's not a mistake that we're, we're jumping between translations there but there's three things that I think mirror the gospel and these three things are deliver defeat and establish What we see in these four verses, very simply, is we see God deliver his people, we see God defeat the enemy, and we see him establish his kingdom. Three points that are not that difficult for us to see in the gospel. So I want to, for a couple of minutes in each point, look at at what we are being taught in Obadiah and then mirror that with the gospel and see what is said. And of course, all of this is done in the context of what we looked at last week. All of this is done within the context of the power of God and the fact that God is outworking his justice in this world. He was doing it then and he continues to do it today. So first point, God delivers his people in verses 17 and 18. God delivered his people from Babylonian captivity and he continues to deliver them and establish his kingdom amongst them. We're told that Mount Zion will be dedicated to the Lord and all defilement, all unrighteousness will be removed because that is where the Lord will dwell. Although Edom was set in a great location, they will be breached and destroyed. Judah's mountain sanctuary, this holy place will be a place of escape from harm and it again will belong exclusively to To Israel, it will belong to the family of Jacob. We're taught very clearly here that what is promised to God's people will be there. In effect, all of Jerusalem, not just the temple area, will become this holy place where only the righteous people in the temple, by God's laws of of purity, are entitled to dwell. This picture of fire, destruction by fire, is this divine punishment look to it. Of course, that doesn't mean that all fire is divine punishment, but it is a symbol used throughout Scripture. And the Israelites are used to depict that here. And we know that in 600 B.C., The Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem. He went through it. He installed this puppet ruler under him and the Edomites helped the Babylonians loot everything that was there. But what is important from verses 17 to 18 is God made a promise to his people and this is God working out his promise to his people. God said, I will give you what is yours and here he is delivering his people because he will not stand for what stands against his people. And amazingly, despite their rebellion despite the fact that they have no entitlement to what is before them, because God has made that promise, despite their rebellion, God will free them from captivity. God will pour out his mercy upon his people. He will not only give them freedom, but he will restore them. He is here delivering them from persecution and from enemies. The dictionary word of delivered, to bring and hand over, to bring and hand over. God brought his people from captivity. God brought his people from persecution and he handed them over to safety. Matthew 27, we see three cases of Jesus being delivered. The first in verse 2 of Matthew 27, Jesus was delivered to Pilate. And they bound him and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. That same idea that the people, the people that Jesus had come into this world to reconcile to God himself, they brought him and they handed him over to be judged by earthly rulers. Man would deliver Jesus to the the man with the authority to kill him. He was delivered by the betrayal of a friend. But we see God deliver Israel time and time and time again, despite their disobedience, despite the fact that they turn their backs on him time and time again. And the one who comes to deliver us is the one who is being delivered to the slaughter. We jump down to verse 26 of Matthew 27. He was released for them. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged, Jesus delivered him to be crucified. The system had taken Jesus, had brought him in, and they had delivered him to die. The God that delivers his people, the God that is faithful to his people, is here being crucified by his people. Christ was delivered to death. What a sad, sad state of affairs. But then we jump further from there to verses 51 to 54. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him kept watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus Christ, though his betrayal, though his beating, though his death, despite our disobedience, still delivered his people. Just as the Father had his covenant, with his people, this geographical, this ethnic group of people, just as he protected them, as he used his power to watch over them, as he caused their enemies to stumble and to die. So here we see Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, delivered into the hands of the enemy, yet delivering us from the enemy in the process. Why? Because Jesus very simply was not defeat it do we see the wonder in this that Christ Jesus came not so that we might know deliverance from our earthly struggles and from the sin and the enemies that face us now but that we might know deliverance from godlessness that we might know a life that is full of God how wonderful is it that he pours out his grace that he delivers the unworthy and that is what we see of the Father in Obadiah. We see a God that again delivers the unworthy. <coughs> Despite their faults, God keeps his covenant with his people. Delivered to bring and to hand over. Jesus brings his people through the tearing of the curtain, the gates of salvation open to all of mankind who know and believe and love him, that we may be delivered from the hands of the enemy, that we may be delivered from our sinfulness. What a sacrifice we see here. What a love from a God we see here. We see God from the beginning of the Old Testament pour out his grace upon his people. We see a God that time and time again, from Adam and Eve and their disobedience to show grace upon them, we see it time and time and time again, God delivers his people. Secondly, in verses 19 and 20 here, we find that God will defeat the enemy Repossession of the promised land is part of the restoration promise that is given to his people in Deuteronomy 30, verses 4 and 5. It reads Even if you have been banished to the most distant lands under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. Again, a promise here, a covenant here, with no conditions for his people. God, Israel, time and time, God's people, time and time again, turning their back on God. And God's promise to them is, I will bring you back and I will make you more prosperous and I will make you more numerous than your ancestors. There is no negotiation from God here. God has made a promise and this will happen. Stupid Edom. How ridiculous. They didn't listen, they didn't look, they didn't see what was promised to God's people because if they'd read it and they knew what was coming, surely they wouldn't have gone and ransacked them. Surely they would not have supported the enemies that came to them. Can we jump onto the map slide, please? I'll very briefly go into this. It might be too small. It probably is. Yellow box at the bottom, Edom. Above that, Judah. Above that, Israel. The circle box that isn't geographically correct because it added it in is the land of Ephraim, the two arrows there, we have Gilead in the north arrow, and then we get the mountains of Esau in the south. The remaining verses here talk about the retaking of the land. Israel will reclaim the land that was inhabited by the Edomites, that is the Negev that is written in this passage. They will take the land of the Philistines, the Shephelah, And again, history tells us that they were wiped out. They will take the land of the Samaritans, Ephraim, in the blue circle up there. Benjamin will possess Gilead, and the exiles in Canaan will possess land as far north as Zarephath, which is that little arrow right in the top left-hand corner. God follows through on his promises. There are people here that are in captivity. There are people here that are being persecuted for being the people of God, that are being utterly hated and in amongst All of that, God comes in and said, I will keep my promise to my people, be gone. Be gone because I protect my people. And that is what we see here. The Edomites, the Philistines, the Samaritans, they will all be defeated. The lesson in that is all who stand in God's way will be defeated. But there's also a principle in here that before they could have their inheritance, before we could know our inheritance, the enemy must be dealt with. We couldn't see this land-sharing thing going on here because of the sheer hatred of the people against the Israelites. The enemy must be dealt with. For the people to receive their inheritance, the enemy must be dealt with. We're not struggling to find Jesus in amongst us. We cannot have two masters. We cannot serve the world. We cannot serve God. Why? Because they are two complete opposites. So God deals with the enemy And his people have what he has promised to them. How does Jesus defeat the enemy? Let's mirror the passage into the life of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 55 to 57. Well-known verses to all of us. Where, O death, is your victory. Where, O death, is your sting. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God again, in His power and His might, in His grace and in His mercy, promises. Promises to His people. He keeps the promises that He has made to His people. Where is the sting of death? Where is the victory of death for God's people? On earth, where is the sting of death? The sting of death is Everywhere. It is everywhere around about us. This thing of death is sin. The effects of sin are all around us. I don't need to go into that to talk about the effect of sin because each one of us know it. Each one of us know the effect of death in our lives. But when we look at sin, we see the perfect righteousness of God. We see the righteous standards of God. And in that, we see how far short we fall of that. And come these ones. Oh, death, where is your sting? Look around us, there is so much misery, there is so much hurt, there is so much brokenness, there is so much wickedness, there is so much death. Surely the sting of death is so great, surely sin is so great, but thanks be to God. Thank goodness for God, because those that know and love Christ, there is no victory for death. Why? Because God dealt with the enemy. And because he did that, we might know God. Because we know that in death, the consequences of our sinfulness are so vast, are so deep-rooted, are so ingrained in our human nature, we see that outworked in Esau in the land of Edom that we've been reading about, that the whole book of Obadiah is speaking to. We cannot escape it. But the wonderful reality is that there is a saviour, that there is a deliverer, that there is a defeater who conquered the grave. And through him, we may have victory. Through him, we may know eternal life and relationship with God. Just as the Jews were given their victory over their enemies after centuries of struggle, not through anything they did, but through the sovereignty and the goodness of God we too now are given this eternal promise in Christ that we will not perish, but we will have everlasting life. That is there for each one of us now, that in Christ there is no death, but in Christ there is only victory. Not because of us, but despite us. God has won that battle over sin and hell. He has won that battle, and we can know that. Let the richness of that truth consume you. The words, O death, where is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, Christians, that that means we do not have to give in to temptation. We do not have to sin. We do not have to find our security in the things in the world that are in front of us. We do not need to do the things that our old natures did because he has made things new. He has defeated the evil one. Hallelujah. Death, where is your victory? Nowhere, because Jesus reigns. Death, where is your sting? Nowhere, because we are a new creation. And thirdly, in verse 21, God will establish his kingdom. The verse reads, deliver us, go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. The Lord will reign from Mount Zion where his temple will stand. And as we read in Isaiah 2 verse 2, all nations will stream to it. There will be gatherings of multitudes of people at this place. Mount Zion just outside the gates of Jerusalem. The highest point in the city. The pinnacle of God's city. That holy place. I think the word deliverers in this is interesting because this is people that will assist God. These are righteous people. They are good people. Good leaders. But I think there's also something prophetic in here of the deliverers that will one day come and will bring the good news that is in Jesus Christ. Again, God's people will have what God has promised to them. He will wipe out their enemies so that they may have what God has promised to them. Here, the word kingdom refers to a geographical place, the place where God himself dwells, where the holy of holies is, the place where God dwells on earth. But we know that Jesus came and he turns that on his head. Jesus comes and fulfills it. There are so many things we could say about Jesus and the kingdom. But I want to do four really quickly. What does Jesus do? Matthew 1 23. Jesus introduces the kingdom. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom comes into this world not through this great reigning warrior of a king, but through this baby. What Israel had long awaited stood before them. Christ came and introduced the kingdom. We read in Luke 17, 21, that Jesus is the kingdom. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Where there is the king, there is the kingdom. And this is precisely why Jesus says this to the Pharisees. That Jesus embodies the kingdom idea of God's people in God's place under God's rule. Because Jesus is both the faithful ruler of his kingdom, but he is also a righteous citizen of the kingdom here on earth. John 18, 36, Jesus came to transform the kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is in another place. Jesus transforms. He shows there is more than just geographical location, but it's about everything to do with the person's nature. That it is cosmic in its size. It is so big that the kingdom of God is infinite. And in Christ, we catch glorious glimpses of it. And the wonderful words we find in Revelation 19, 16. That he will come again. In the second coming of Christ, Jesus will this time return as the triumphant warrior king. As he returns for his people as he comes, he will be described as the king of kings and the lord of lords. At last he places all his enemies, everything that we face under his feet, as we see a new creation. All of us look forward to that day when the kingdom that we know is the kingdom of God. When we see the eternal kingdom, when we are with God Himself and He shall reign forever and ever. Every tongue will confess, every knee will bow and say that He is Lord. What can we take from all of this? May it bring comfort for us like it brought comfort to the Jews. That God has got this. That God has got you. That God is sovereign in everything. That through all the struggles and the woes, the Israelites can see how God has delivered them, how he has defeated the enemy and established his kingdom. But also, may this bring comfort for us, that Jesus has delivered us from death, that he has conquered the grave, and that he has established his kingdom, and praise the Lord, he will return again. Do you know, we just cannot get away from this book that, when we read it at first glance, just looks all about killing, looks so negative, but actually it is just full of the grace of our God. It is full of our God's grace towards his people, Something they so didn't deserve. Something that we so don't deserve. But God was with them. God was correcting his people, punishing his people along the way. But he still always kept his promise to his people. Do you know that Jesus has defeated death this evening? Do you know that no longer we have to live lives full of sin and bitterness and struggle? That we no longer have to live lives that look to ourselves, but we can live lives that look to God, that are full of hope, that are full of peace, that are full of joy, despite the mess that can be round about us at times. If you don't, I urge you to chat to someone. I urge you to consider it. I urge you to consider Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. God, from the first page to the last page of this book, is the deliverer and he is the defeater, and he will and has and will again establish his kingdom on earth. God, in his sovereign power and in his mighty justice, restored his people. And 600 years later, the Messiah would come and he would fulfill everything that has gone before. He would deliver from the enemy. He would defeat that enemy and he would establish his kingdom. God is in control. God is working it all out. Rest in him. Rest in him. Don't rest in yourself. But know that God is good. God is faithful. And God is with us. No matter what we do. Rest in him. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, would we take comfort in the fact that you are the God that knows us better than we know ourselves? Would we take comfort in the fact that you are the God that has delivered us from evil, that you are the God who has defeated death and sin, that you are the God that is in control, that you are the God that loves us more than any person ever physically could, that you are the God that loves his people that never abandons his people and is always watching out for his people. Lord, would that be our comfort from this day forward? Would it be our comfort that you were a God throughout scripture never changed and to this day does not change? You are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. God, would we rest in that fact? Would we find our comfort in the fact that you are so good and that you love us dearly? Amen.